0: Good morning and welcome to another mini-Monday episode of Crime Over Coffee. Part of our mini-Monday series will include episodes about the stories surrounding cold cases that don't have quite enough information for a full episode. We're your hosts, I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today's cold case is going to cover the infamous boy in the box and some of the mysterious surroundings around this case. So pour yourself a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. We would like to give a brief warning before jumping into this episode as it deals with violent acts against a young child. We will not be going into extreme detail outside of what is necessary to tell the story, but we would advise listener caution for this episode. On February 25th, 1957, the body of a boy was found off a country lane in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. Frederick Benosis was the man who reported the body of the boy. However, he had waited a day before doing so. I read that he did this because he kind of was down there trying to peep on young women. So I think he was a little adamant about going to the police because he didn't want to answer those kind of questions. Sounds like a stellar guy. Yes, he did at least report the body. I mean, it was a day later, but one man actually had seen the body few days prior and also didn't report it because he had illegal traps for, I don't know, I think it was like muskrats or something and he didn't want to get in trouble for that. I'm disappointed (laughs) in this human race. It's very disappointing and sad. It's, I don't know. But anyway, his body was reported and they found him and the boy's body was completely naked and wrapped in a flannel blanket and placed in a box from JCPenney. His age was estimated between four to six years old and he had recently been bathed with his nails trimmed so it was assumed that he was somewhat taken care of. However, he was extremely malnourished and he weighed only about 30 pounds which is pretty small for a four to six year old. That's really sad. He was 40 and a half inches tall and had a fair complexion. He had blue eyes and light brown hair. And police and investigators, they check missing persons, missing childrens, and he, his description didn't match any of them. So they put together a, they actually have a photo of his, I guess, his head, his face from different angles. And gave out flyers trying to see if someone would come forward and identify who the boy was. They also did a forensic facial reconstruction of the boy. We'll post both of these pictures on our social media. However, these led to nothing. Nobody was able to identify the boy as someone they knew, which is kind of crazy. You would think that somebody would be missing a small child like this. So the boy's body was covered in bruises and the cause of death was ruled to be blunt force trauma to his head his hair had been recently cut and everywhere I say it says cut crudely it looks like maybe whoever put him there cut it trying to hide or conceal his identity because a lot of the hairs that were cut were still on his body so it was likely it happened either shortly before his death or even after his death that's crazy Because of the time of year and the location with the snow and winter, it was hard to determine a time of death for the boy. And some of the articles just said they couldn't determine one. I did see one where they said it could have been anywhere from two to three days to three weeks that he had been dead, but they just weren't quite sure. The boy had seven identifying scars on his body with three that seemed to be surgical of some sort, one on his chest, his groin, and his left ankle. So presumably he had some type of surgery or something like that that would have caused the scars. The boy's footprints and fingerprints were taken by investigators, but they did not match any national database or hospital records in the area, which is odd and would maybe say that he wasn't born in a hospital because that's something they do with every baby that's born is take a print and he did not match any of them. So without the identity of the boy and no one coming forward with information investigators started to look at the surroundings and even the box that he was in and wondered, they could see their serial number on it and it was from JCPenney. So they tracked it to a JCPenney store 15 miles away in Upper Darby in Pennsylvania. And the box belonged to a bassinet for a baby. And at this time, this JCPenney was only doing cash transactions, so they didn't have any record of it. But they did know that they had sold 12 of these bassinets. And investigators put this on the news and put it out there and wanted people to come forward. And they ended up identifying 11 of the 12 bassinets in their boxes and the people who had bought them. But that one never came forward, so I'm not sure. Of course they didn't come forward. <laughs> it's because they just killed a little boy and stuck him in the box. Yeah, I. it makes sense. It's possible, too, though, that that person who bought it wasn't the one who did it. But they disposed of the box and the box... I mean, how many boxes have you ended up with that aren't from a store that you bought stuff from? (laughs) It's also, I guess, possible that
1: maybe one of those 11 people that did come forward had the box and they just
0: decided, I'll look less suspicious. I do wonder, too, it's possible because he was wrapped in a blanket and placed in the box. I wonder if whoever brought the body there had him wrapped in the blanket and there was a box some reason on the side of the road and they placed it in there. That doesn't make a lot of sense either, though. So I think likely they had the box already at their house. Yeah, that would be my guess as well. The blanket that he was wrapped in, they tried to track, but all they could find out was that it was either made in Quebec in Canada or North Carolina, and thousands of them were made and distributed. So that was just a dead end. I don't know that like where
1: it was made matters as much. I think where it was sold is what's going to say a lot more.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think and from what I gathered, it was just sold in a ton of different stores. So there was just no real way to track it. A hat was found near the box. It was a blue corduroy Ivy League style hat. And it actually came from a very specific store. The store name was on the tag and it was in South Philadelphia. So investigators went to that store and talked to the owner. And she recognized it because it was a custom made hat. The man who came in and requested it wanted a leather strap and buckle put into it. However, it was a cash transaction and she didn't have a name. She did say it was a man who was alone wearing working clothes, which I'm not sure exactly what that means, but he was in his late 20s and he had blonde hair. So investigators canvassed the area around the store with a description of the man, but it didn't turn up. Nobody knew anything. So that just turned into a dead end as well. There are some other tips, theories, and other things kind of found in the area where the boy in the box was found that you can find on this website that was started. It's called America's Unknownchild.net. That's another phrase they use for this boy, and there's a lot of information on it. Um, I'm not going to go through all of it because a lot of it isn't necessarily even relevant. It was a highly publicized case, and a lot of people got really interested in it and came up with their theories, wrote books, and spent even. There is one guy who spent thousands of his own dollars trying to figure out who this boy was and what happened. And I'll actually tell you a little bit about his theory. So please go to FireDeptCoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So this man's name was Remington Bristow, and he was a medical examiner, and he investigated this case for 36 years, and he, like I said, spent thousands of dollars out of his own pocket trying to do this. Um, He consulted with a psychic, and he came up with a theory that this boy was from a foster family that lived nearby where the body was found. And the psychic kind of backed this up. She would touch metal things and could see where I guess it came from. I don't know. But she touched something that was found with the body and was able to, to her, say that the boy was from this foster home. And this medical examiner followed into it. And he tried to talk to the family. He believed that the boy was maybe accidentally killed and they disposed of his body and they didn't want to go through the proper ways of telling authorities and stuff that he died accidentally because they didn't want them to know about the kid. So I have a question. If he was part of a
1: foster family, wouldn't they have had some sort of like records and stuff? in the foster care system or was he thinking that he was biologically the son of the foster parents and that so then there wouldn't have been any record because i would have thought that whoever was the like caseworker for the foster family would have realized that this kid was missing because they do check-ins.
0: Yes, uh, this was actually his theory. He believed they didn't come forward because the boy was a illegitimate son of the father of the foster family. He was having some type of affair with his stepdaughter and believed that the child was theirs and when the child passed away they didn't want that to become known so they tried to dispose of his body it is well later on after the mom that was married to the foster family dad she passed away and then that dad married the stepdaughter so there was definitely something going on there and later on I think she admitted to having a son at some point that's definitely concerning yeah in multiple ways and Emmy Remington who was investigating this saw that the foster family was like selling their home and moving and he went to their estate sale and there was a bassinet outside that he said looks like the one in question from the JCPenney box and that there were plaid blankets that were hanging on the lines that he believed to match the ones that the boy's body was wrapped in. He got Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine to look into it because he was so convinced, but there is no actual hard concrete evidence to tie them to the death of the boy. If you go to that um, site I told you about, there's a lot more information and reasons why he tried to connect them to the uh, murder or accidental death of the boy that you can check out. So for me, the most relevant theory is... It came from a lady known as M, is all they they gave to, I think, protect her identity. And this didn't come until February 2002. She was from Cincinnati, Ohio, and it actually came in via her psychiatrist because she was seeing one. And uh, she actually, I guess, told her psychiatrist a story like 13 years prior to this, but didn't want to come forward. And even deciding to come forward in 2002, she wanted her identity to be anonymous, but she claimed that in 1954, her mother, who was abusive to her, bought a boy from his parents in that summer, and she kept him and physically and sexually abused this boy for two and a half years, and his name, according to her, was Jonathan, and eventually the mom killed him when she was really mad because he threw up in the bathtub, and I didn't mention this earlier, but there were signs when looking at the body that he maybe recently had vomited. So Tom Augustine, the police lieutenant, follows this up and he goes to Ohio to interview him, who tells them that she had lived in Pennsylvania in the 1950s with her parents And when she was 10, her mother drove her to a home, and that's where she picked up the boy in exchange for an envelope, which you can assume contained the money, and that, like I said, for two and a half years that he lived with them. According to M, after the mom murdered the boy, she cut his hair to try and conceal his identity, and she trimmed the boy's nails, which I'm not sure what the point of that was, I guess. But then she wrapped the boy's body in an old blanket and put it in the trunk of her car and drove to Philadelphia to find the place to dump the body. And M even went into the descriptions of the road and the lane, like where the body was dumped. And she recalled that they ran into a guy driving when they were going to dispose of the body. And he was asking them if they had car trouble and they just kind of ignored him. And the guy went to police and made a report of this weird sighting because he said that the ladies or the lady there would not talk to him and was careful to cover her license plate so he could not see it and these stories ended up matching up when in 2002 when investigators looked into it so all this seems pretty likely right it sounds like it's it's all matching up and for me I think it does but They were never to find anything substantial to connect them, and they pointed to M's history with mental instability, saying that she wasn't a reliable source. So they, I guess, decided this wasn't going to be the answer to this investigation.
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds like it could be pretty
0: accurate. In the end, um, the boy in the box, he was buried in a potter's field, and the tombstone just read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. In 1998, they actually exhumed the body so they could try to do a mitochondrial DNA test and see if they could match him, but he, they didn't have enough DNA to actually use it. So after this, they reburied the boy in a donated coffin at the Ivy Hill Cemetery. And there's been shows, books, movies even about this case, trying to figure out what's going on and what happened to this boy and how did he end up in the box. And I definitely recommend going and checking out the website I mentioned because there's a lot of information and they keep it updated. Um, they've got pictures, news archives, any updates. So to this day, we still just, we don't know the identity of the boy in the box or how he got there. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at CrimeOverCoffeePod at Outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.